Welcome to the Test Scotland podcast. I'm Henry Hepburn, news editor at Test Scotland, and I'm here in a virtual sense anyway with senior reporter Emma Seath. Hi, Emma. Hello there. Our guest today, uh, and we're on the afternoon of Friday the 3rd of July, is Education Secretary and Deputy First Minister John Swinney. Welcome once again. Good to be with you. You joined us for the Tales Scotland podcast back in January, last time we recorded the podcast from your office in the Scottish Parliament, uh, in those halcyon days when social distancing was an unfamiliar concept. Today we're recording the podcast remotely with you in your home in Perthshire, Emma's in Gal Shields and I'm in Falkirk. Uh, so the situation's changed slightly there. Um, back in January, schools were fully open, exams weren't cancelled and children were able to do the most natural thing in the world, to go out and play with their friends. So that world was obviously turned upside down in the intervening months and I'm curious what it's all meant for the role of Education Secretary. Um, can you tell us what's the biggest difference between being Education Secretary in January 2020 and being Education Secretary in July 2020? I think probably the biggest difference has been the physical factor of the difference, the, the, essentially the lack of physical interaction with the school community. Um, I think that's been the biggest factor that's made a difference in my uh, in how I spend my time. You know, back in January, uh, I would be uh, in various schools several times a week on every week, and that would take up you know, many hours, um, all of them uh, really pleasant hours of my time learning about what approaches were being taken, what innovations were in place. And then since March the 20th, well, March the 20th, really, um, that's just disappeared completely. Um, uh, so that, 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 I think, is probably the biggest issue in terms, the biggest difference in terms of how I'm spending my time. I think the, the other thing is that um, the, the, there's a the difference in the, the scale and the nature of the challenge is even greater than it was in January. You know, being Education Secretary is not straightforward. There are many competing and different views about what should be the right thing to do. Um, but I suppose in reality, these are differences of emphasis within a, a, an established framework. Today, I'm wrestling with the issues about how do we get schools back open full time and the complexities that go with that, because what we're finding out, and this isn't just an education thing, we're finding this out about every single sector with which the government is interacting. It's much easier to say, right, stay at home, stay away from danger and to shut things down much easier to do that than to say, right, let's open up. And every decision you make, I guess, as well, it has a it has a consequence, you know, so even like when on the face of it, it would seem to be, you know, sort of what's needed and what's called for. I'm just thinking about, you know, I know that when you announced the hundred million pounds uh, over the two years to support the um, full time, you know, sort of reopening of uh, of schools in August. That the idea was that some of my my interpretation was the idea was that that money would be used to ensure that there were jobs for this year's probationers next year. But then the flip side of that, as we've sort of just recently learned, is that 
other teachers who qualified in other years who don't yet have a permanent post, then that has a knock on effect for them. So I guess even when you feel like you've done something that, you know, sort of should solve a problem, then something else kind of comes up. What, what's your thinking around that issue just now? Well, you're, you're absolutely right, Emma, that there are that there are consequences of every decision that you take. And some of the things that you, you, you do will not be universally welcomed, although they will be welcomed by many, many people. So it's about trying to navigate your way through all of that to make sure that you properly and fully um, address the, uh, all of the issues that are involved. On the, the question about um, newly qualified teachers and recently qualified teachers, what I'm interested in doing is boosting the size of the teaching workforce because I think that's probably the most significant contribution we can make to trying to help to strengthen the delivery of education and to support young people to make up for the ground that's been disrupted since the 20th of March. So I'm looking um, uh, I'll be speaking next week uh, I'm just in the process of finalizing this with some of the recently qualified teachers, I spoke to newly qualified teachers. We're just trying to get that, the practical arrangements of that conversation um, uh, arranged. But you know, I, I'm, I'll, I'll do that next week if it's physically possible for it to be done. And so I can hear from their perspective because I want to maximise the size of the teaching workforce, and I want to use the resources that are available to us to do that because next year is going to be critical in trying to help young people to make up for what I acknowledge has been a, a really significant period of disruption, but into which I think the teaching profession and parents and young people themselves have committed themselves really significantly to try to avoid any damage as a consequence. Just for context, this is an issue that's sprung up quite recently. For people who haven't been following it closely, you were sent a letter yesterday signed by 300 teachers who it was quite strongly worded, I think, in the opening line when they used the phrase, you've turned your back on us, and they were referring, as you say, to the recent guarantee you gave to newly qualified teachers of a year, year of, excuse my, <laughs> excuse my words, a year of employment. Um, so those teachers who might have just qualified maybe a year or two previous to that are saying, well, we've been left in the lurch here. So you, you've said that you're going to be meeting some of them next week. Can you give us a sense of what, you, beyond what you've told us there already, of what you might say to them when you meet them in person? Well, what I'm, what I'm keen, the first thing is that, you know, I, th I think anyone looking at my track record will realise that I've taken a set of decisions which has resulted in the expansion of the teaching workforce in Scotland and the data. I don't need anyone else to authenticate that. The data speaks for itself. There are more teachers today in Scottish schools than there were when I became the Education Secretary. So I've done, you know, I've tried my best to expand the teaching workforce and I'm really committed to doing that. So what I want to be able to do is to continue that work, but essentially to accelerate it because I recognise the significance of it for this coming school year. So I'll, I'll listen carefully to the recently qualified teachers. I want to make sure that we've got as strong a teaching cohort available as possible in the school year 2020-21. And um, I, I, I'll listen carefully to the points that the recently qualified teachers want to make to me about that. And obviously another issue in recent months is that uh, we've expanded the 
hugely the amount of people who are operating as teachers, but many of us not qualified as teachers these days. Um, you've had some experience of that yourself as, you know, as a dad of a primary school age boy. Um, how have you found home learning? It's been, well, there's obviously a juggle going on. Um, and uh, I have to say in the, in the, in the interests of fairness, openness and transparency, and just in case my wife was ever to hear this broadcast, that my wife has done more of the home education than I have, um, because I've been slightly preoccupied. I think what I would say about it is, is two things. The first is that I've been very impressed by what my son's primary school have provided for us. Um, we basically get uh, three or four tasks a day set by um, Matthew's classroom teacher. Um, they are um, they're set, they're provided digitally, they're responded to by Matthew, they're responded to by his teacher. Um, and that goes on, you know, that's, that's, that, that has been consistent since, um, since lockdown started, or, or maybe just slightly after lockdown started, to be honest about it. Um, that's also complemented by um, some very good exercises in trying to keep the school community together. So we've had, um, we've had virtual assemblies. Um, my son goes to a, a Catholic school, so uh, every Monday morning starts with gospel, uh, as his Monday morning would start with if he was at school. And, um, and that's, a, that's something that brings all the, the, the children together. Um, we've had virtual sports day, and as is the tradition with my son's sports day, it was the only day for weeks in which it was absolutely chucking it down outside. So, which has been the hallmark of every sports day he's had since he's been at primary school. So this one was no different. So virtual sports day took place in the living room uh, with all sorts of adaptations. And, but just these, and I think that, 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 that keeping the school community together element, I think was very significant. The second thing I would say is that throughout it, Matthew has still remained engaged and motivated around his, his learning. So I, I wouldn't say it's been a struggle to say to him, this is a school day. He's differentiated between school days and the weekend. The things that normally go on in this house at the weekend still go on. The thing that the routine of school day has been pretty much there. So I, I think that's been, from my point of view and our experience, a reassuring thing that Matthew's remained engaged in his learning. Um, now, all of that, I think, it can only happen um, if you've got a great commitment from the teaching staff, which we certainly have, and I know that others have had around the country. Um, but it's been a, but it's it's been a, it's been a quite a tough and challenging period. I'm wondering um, with your son which camp he sort of falls into if he does indeed fall into one of these two camps. So my daughter has you down as a hero for uh, bringing back full time school. <laughs> But for my son, you're the bogeyman. <laughs> so, what does Matthew make of it? I think hero or villain. I'm not sure. I'm not sure he would admit to it, but I think he's on the the side of the of the hero of going back to school. I don't just mean he thinks his father's a hero because, believe you me, he doesn't always think that. 
but I think he, I think he's, I think he's quite keen to get back there. I think he's, he's certainly he's missed his, he's missed his friends, he's missed the interaction. We've also, we've my, my wife has MS and and we've so she's been shielding. So Matthew has been here with his mum, um, since March the twentieth, mm-hmm. and. Um, and obviously, I've been here most of the time as well because my parliamentary colleagues have been really, really understanding about my situation. So, quite literally, the only way COVID could come into our house is if I brought it in. Actually, I te- you know, it's a terrible thing to kind of mm-hmm. handle, and it wouldn't be good for my wife if she got it. So, I've been trying to stay at home as much as possible. I've gone to Parliament um, infrequently. This is, uh, you know, this is my son's bedroom and, you know, I regularly broadcast into Parliament from this very seat um, to give statements, answer questions, take part in committee proceedings. Has that, has that resulted in, has that resulted in any mishaps, you know, like when he comes in looking for his <laughs> comics or... <laughs> well, we did have, I was on a, I was on an, an education recovery group call, it must have been just last week, I think, and um, Matthew's school were doing a virtual school trip, um, and they were doing it to um, a, a, a sort of an ocean park in a Hawaii, I think it was. So just before the, the discussion started, he comes out to me and says, where's my snorkel? Um, I'm going on this school trip. So I went away and found the snorkel and gave it to him. So I'm in the middle of this um, education recovery group call uh, and I was doing it at my desk downstairs and out he comes in the living room with full goggles and snorkel on to present himself to the education recovery group. So they were all rather tickled by um, the intrusion. But I've not, I've not yet had um, an interruption of a media bit. I see all these different examples of folks. First time for everything. First time. Well, well, <laughs> um, who's who's sitting there, and then the demand for biscuits comes, and you know, I'm glad. It's really nice when you see these things to think. Well, thank goodness we're not the only household that has a daily war about biscuits. Um, you know, so it, 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 but so it's quite. It's been quite. Um, but that's an example. That that was a, a use of a piece of digital material. Where the children were able to look up this particular venue and to visualize their trip and write about their trip and talk about their trip and it was i thought i thought it was a fabulous piece of work well i think uh, i mean i wrote a couple of months ago about how i predicted that uh, people would come out of all this having a deeper appreciation of what teachers do and the skill and uh, uh, that's required and in doing that job, um, I certainly have, I think it took until the morning of the second day of home education, home learning, when I was you know, full of beans for this new experience and my six-year-old uttered the phrase, I thought home learning was going to be better than this. So <laughs> just to be just lasted 24 hours before she was disappointed with the quality of the experience. So I hope, I hope you lasted a wee bit longer than that. Um, but yeah, I honestly think that, uh, you know, well, I'm hopeful that uh, our, the general perception of teachers will only be enhanced by everything, ultimately by everything yeah. that's happening just now. Well, I said, you know, I, I think it's interesting the degree of adaptation that teachers have had to do really very quickly. Like to, to, to be honest, the most amount of notice you could really say people had about this or suspected was maybe two weeks. 
Mm-hmm. If it was even that, probably not even that, not probably not even two school weeks. And the degree of preparation and then the inventiveness that's gone in in terms of um, lesson planning and communication. And then also in terms of the availability of resources. In one of the schools in my constituency, there's a lot of challenges of poverty that that school wrestles with. Um, and they put a box of materials, I saw a number of schools doing this around the country, a box of materials into the local co-op, which is open all the time, dedicated for the pupils of that school. They kept it replenished, it was used. The lovely staff in the co-op were quite happy to be the kind of agents of making sure that was all used properly. And, and, and just, I think it's one of these examples of teachers thinking, knowing their pupils, knowing what the issues are going to be and putting solutions in place quietly, sensitively, that address those needs so that nobody's excluded. And I think, you know, that's just one example. There's been thousands of them around the country, which I think are a huge credit to the teaching profession. And can we ask you about the, the whole issue of when schools reopen and how they come back. It obviously became, towards the end of last month, a very charged issue in Parliament and in the media and beyond. Uh, why was it that the government left until just a day before many schools were due to go on holiday before telling teachers that they should plan? You know, the messaging changed in quite a big way uh, that now you should be planning for a full, a full return of schools from August as opposed to the, you know, this idea of blended learning continuing for quite some time to come into the new year. What was the thinking there? The fact that changed it was because of the, the general review we were doing of the progress we were making in tackling coronavirus. When the Education Recovery Group started out doing its work um, in April, we were looking at a pretty poor outlook on COVID. And the cases were very high, the fatalities were very high. It seemed like that would be with us for a long time. And what we began to see, so that work all was completed and published in late May um, on the basis of a pretty bleak outlook. And that was published alongside the government's phases of the relaxation of lockdown um, with schools at the, you know, the latter part of that um, relaxation agenda. What we began to see during June was very significant improvement in our performance on reducing the incidence of COVID. And again, you, you look at those numbers and you've got to be careful that they are going to be sustained. You've got to be careful that's going to go on um, for a period. You're not going to see that just rising up, particularly because of the dangers that we were really incurring by relaxing lockdown with phase one. So we had no idea what would be the reaction to the phase one lockdown. Would it run away from us and you'd see a spike in cases? There was no guarantee that about that when we started out. What we began to see in the data was a continuation of the, traje- the trajectory of improvement. So it began to become apparent to us that we would be moving through the phases likely at a faster pace than we thought. 
And that then essentially threw up the fact that schools would be returning in August. And the context into which they would be returning would be very different. And people's experiences would be very different, particularly around, for example, parents being back at work. So we had to essentially adapt to that changing context, uh, which is what we did now. Um, we've, I think the important thing to remember is that we weren't announcing something in, uh, you know, on the 26th of June that was going to happen on the 27th of June. We're announcing something that's going to happen in August in seven weeks' time. Now, I appreciate there's the school holidays, but you know, I think it's, it's actually um, it's a different proposition to think about our schools operating with all pupils in, uh, that's because that's what they normally do, and schools operating with only some of their pupils in, which is what the blended learning model was all about. So we had to adapt to those circumstances to make sure that we had in place the um, the means of restoring full-time education at the earliest possible opportunity, which had al always been our policy objective. And uh, and, that's, and we can all see for ourselves how, how dramatically things changed over the course of a month or so, but there was also, in the period leading up to your announcement, quite a lot of political pressure. And then after you made your, your statement to the Scottish Conservatives, Lord McConnell seemed to be taking some of the credit for bringing that pressure to bear on this issue. How much was your decision guided purely by the data and how much was it a, a political response to what was going on at the time? It was guided by the data. We've been guided by the data through the whole thing because I can't, I can't take the risk. I know people say things in politics, but you know, they're not the ones taking the decisions. We're the ones that are, you know, that are, are responsible for the decision making that's got to be undertaken. I can only open schools if it's safe to do so. And I won't open schools unless it's safe to do so. Uh, and we've got to be driven by the evidence and the data to enable us to do that. And even some of those who sort of welcomed the, the change, um, there was a suggestion that, the, as you said, the trajectory was clearly going in a certain direction, but perhaps with hindsight, could you have made that decision maybe a week earlier just to give teachers a wee bit more time before the schools broke up for the summer? Or was that... I think that, I think the difficulty is, is in the question of whether... You know, we took the decision at the earliest possible opportunity we were confident about taking it because you've got to be careful that the progress is sustained. And you know, what, what we've seen in the Scottish data has been a, a relatively consistent trajectory despite the fact that we've relaxed phases already. So now, you know, if you'd said to me, what would my expectation have been before the phase one relaxation? I would have said, well, I hope we'll see a continuation of the trajectory, but I could understand how we might have seen an, up, an uptick. Now, we didn't see that. So you, you have to give it enough time to be certain that you're making the consistent progress that enables you to act in the fashion that we've acted. I know you were saying there that, um, you know, because it's about returning to full-time face-to-face education, that that is what schools would usually do after the summer holidays and therefore, you know, there's not maybe as much preparation needed. But I think that because schools had been planning for part-time education 
and that some schools would have therefore had furniture, you know, sort of put into storage and, you know, sort of created the two metre social distancing and had been, you know, sort of planning and preparing for that because there was very little time between the statement in Parliament and then the schools closing. But at the same time, we say that the that they're going to get their summer holiday. Can you see why that maybe rings a little bit hollow for, you know, sort of maybe head teachers in particular, but, but head teachers and teachers? I, I understand that, Emma. I completely understand that. I, but I also understand that a lot of head teachers are absolutely desperate to get their kids back in the schools because they, they, they want to they want to support their children, young people. And one of the things which has not surprised me, but has been very, very visible in a lot of the activity I've seen on social media, particularly and what Her Majesty's Inspector you know, share with me about their reviews of what's going on around about the education system, is the length to which schools are going to support the well-being, learning of their children. And that is absolutely crucial part of what the schools are doing. And therefore, the, the, the hunger on the part of head teachers to get the kids back into school and to be able to support them is, um, is very significant. I think that's that's right. What, but what's your thinking in the in, in terms of the number of days that they might have at the beginning of the new term? We know that there's that date that was set under the previous, you know, sort of reopening plans, the um, Tuesday, August eleventh, for the return of you know sort of all schools in Scotland nationally. But what's your thinking starting to be around whether or not there will be extra days to be able to prepare and, and how many extra days to be able to prepare so that there is that sort of time? Because I suppose, you know, the head teachers will be keen to get their kids back, but they'll be very, very keen to get their kids back safely. Yeah, and and, and, and we have to make sure that's the that's the, 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 the absolutely paramount principle that children and young people are able to return to school safely. And these, these are some of the, the, the points of detail that we're reflecting on in the Education Recovery Group. It's continuing to meet and has been meeting since the, um, the uh, was been meeting continuously since April. And uh, we had another session this week. We were looking this week um, with a, a, a fascinating briefing from the scientific advisory group um, who are looking specifically at um, education recovery issues um, education children's issues um, so that was a, a, a meeting between the education recovery group and the, um, the subgroup of the uh, Scottish Government advisory group on, on COVID um, to give us that the, uh, the, the, the early thinking on some of the issues that will affect school reopening and obviously we'll take some detailed decisions on the back of that advice. So could I ask you then, um, obviously we've everyone's got this, uh, this date of 11th of August in their mind, but School Leaders Scotland has said it'll actually be a staggered reopening still. Looks like in some parts of Scotland it'll be the following week before all pupils are back. The 11th of August itself will basically be an in-service day in some parts of Scotland by the looks of it. So have you got a particular date in mind that all being well, everything carries on going in the right direction? Is there a particular date you've got in your head just now for when all pupils will be back on the same day across the whole of Scotland? Uh, I, I want that to be as early as possible. And uh, what we you know, what we had in the, um, the arrangements that were agreed beforehand was essentially all pupils would be, well, pupils would be back to some extent on either the 11th or the 12th of August. 
Um, so we're working through the detail of all of that within the education recovery group, um, but uh, I want to make sure that's as early as, as possible. There's no specific date targeted yet. We're, we're, we're not, we've not agreed that uh, that point yet, um, but we're, we're working through that detail. There's um, one of the councils that's kind of published some of its plans is uh, Fife Council. They're looking at um, coming back on Wednesday the 12th for all kids in um, primary and special schools. And then for um, secondary pupils, because of the larger pupil population, they want a chance to test their health and safety um, procedures. So they're suggesting that that first week back, all secondary pupils will get to come back for one day and then they will all return full time the following week, beginning on the Monday. Is that kind of plan, does that sit well with you? Because, you know, obviously previously we had the councils publishing their plans for part time, um, you know, part time return of school. And I know that some of those plans you didn't think, you know, were strong enough at that point. So how does that Fife Council plan sit with you? Is that the kind of thing that you're happy, you would be happy to endorse? I think we've got to look very carefully at all of the detail here so that we've got safety um, absolutely central to the decision making that we undertake. So I think th those considerations are the ones that we need to think our way through to make sure that all of the provision that we um, need to take into account, which comes from our scientific advice, is able to be taken into account and that we can come to the right judgment about how pupils and staff can be uh, reintroduced to full-time schooling um, safely and at the earliest possible opportunity. So is that plan okay? <laughs> We're working our way through all these, all these details and that's, you know, and it has to be informed by the advice that one of the things I said to you earlier on is that all of our judgments are informed by the scientific advice. So that's what we're working our way through. And we've said that all of those details will be set out and confirmed because we have to give the system enough notice on what model are we coming back on. And I've said that that will be delivered um, at the latest on the 30th of July, likely to be on the 30th of July, to be honest. Um, in the three-weekly review that's undertaken. The only other opportunity in the three-weekly review is on the 9th of July, and that's too early for us to make a judgment about where the prevalence of the virus has reached within our society. Can you just sort of maybe say, so some of the things that people would be expecting to get final confirmation on from on the July 30th, what kinds of things then will you be able to tell schools about at that point? At that, at that stage, we'll be making clear on what model are schools returning. And uh, our planning assumption is uh, today, which we're working on, is that schools will return full time in August. And that's, uh, that's the objective we're working to. We've got to have the detail in place to support that. And whether we're able to do that or not will have to be set out on the 30th of July. Um, I should make it clear to, I think we just mentioned it at the start in passing, but to people who are listening that this podcast will probably go out early next week, but we're speaking on the day that 11-year-olds and younger kids are able to go out and see their friends and not worry about social distancing. And uh, just as a personal aside, my do elder daughter is 11. She went camping at her friend's house last night and they stayed up to midnight so they could have a hug at a second past midnight. <laughs> So she is very grateful for the change in policy there. Um, 
she's very she is uh, strictly adhered to all the guidelines over the past few months. I was was glad to see that particular one loosened. But um, the full time return of pupils uh, after the summer hinges on you know, no social distance amongst young people, um, and that's you know that moves being backed by the you know, the government scientific advisors now. But can you give us a sense of what social distancing rules might apply to staff in schools come August? I think I think it's likely that um, staff will still have to uh, follow um, physical distancing um, uh, requirements, um, and that, uh, that that necessity will have to be built into the way in which we deliver education, which is a material part of what we are working through in producing the detailed guidance that will be available to the education system that um, if we're going to if we're going to be able to open schools full time in August, which is our planning assumption, um, that guidance will have to be available in good time to enable schools to plan accordingly. And with everything that I mean, that's in place, that's been put in place for the past few months, with all the guidelines, whatever they turn out to be after the summer, there's there's probably all sorts of practical implications a lot of us haven't even really thought through or, or, or appreciated fully yet. And so I, our colleague Julia Belgatai, who covers FE in colleges, we asked her, you know, you know, was there anything she particularly wanted to ask? And she was making the point that a lot of young people of secondary school these age these days, they might spend some time in schools, some time in college. Yeah sometime out in the apprenticeship, they're moving around quite a lot. Do you think those sort of opportunities, those school-college partnerships, foundation apprenticeships will be very limited, you know, limited in scope next year? Will they be badly affected, do you, do you think? I think we'll have to be careful here because the first thing to say is that you know, I, I think the innovation and the reform that's happened to create these school and college partnerships and the emergence of foundation apprenticeships and the pathways that are now created for young people have been one of the tremendous success stories of recent years in Scottish education. It is an absolute asset. It's keeping young people engaged in learning uh, for a longer period of time to a greater degree of fulfilment was the case in the past. So this is where, you know, we've, we've, we've all discussed at length in the last few years, some of the issues around subject choice. And you know what my views are about a lot of the subject choice debate. I think subject choice has exploded within Scottish education to an absolutely fantastic degree. And a lot of it is in meeting the needs of young people who are well served by school and college partnerships. However, having said all that, I'm a huge fan and I want to preserve and protect and promote and expand and extend that as much as I possibly can do. But we're going to have to be careful about the degree of moving around there is. That's one of the points coming out of our scientific advice even within schools we're going to have to be careful about the degree of moving around that goes on because the more moving around that goes on the more interaction there is the more danger there is that um virus can be left on surfaces that can't be cleaned off it can, and just that's the that's the dangers now if the price of restoring full-time schooling is that we've maybe got to re redesign and reorganise how we do certain things to reduce unnecessary moving around to enable us to protect the, the, the opportunities we really want to protect, such as school and college partnerships, then I think we've got to embrace some of those changes to make sure that can 
that can happen in a positive way. I think the whole question of moving around is, 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 is going to be one of the material issues that we've got to sort out. Is there any evidence coming through about which school subjects, you know, which secondary school subjects might be hard to deliver? Uh, we've not got granular detail about that, but you know, we, we've got to um, we've got to look very carefully at um, some of the practical subjects. I think will be will, will potentially throw up some of the difficulties for us, um, and um, you know, we will be the curricular advisors in Education Scotland are looking very carefully at, uh, at those questions, working with schools to make sure that we can maintain uh, the broadest possible curricular choice for children and young people in Scotland. If you look at the debate in England, there's uh, certainly looks like it almost feels like certain subjects might be sacrificed and others prioritised. So yeah, well, there's, I'm, there's I'm, a lot of worry I'm, amongst I'm, I'm, people in home economics, I'm, art, drama, these sort of things are, I think, are very worried about what the implications may be yeah. for their, their subjects. And, 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 I, and I'm not I'm not the only thing that would that I think we need to look at there is the scientific advice about how we can reduce prevalence. We certainly shouldn't be taking any decisions of that type for any other reason than because the data and the evidence tells us that that would be an advantageous thing to do. Mm -hmm. So you you don't see any sort of hierarchy of subjects that certain certain subjects are no. more important to protect than others. No. no. I mean, when we're sort of talking about, um, you know, sort of how we how we get back to school safely, I suppose one of one of the things that's been raised has been about whether or not there'll be regular testing um, offered to education staff. What's the government's position on that? Again, this is some of the this is some of the advice that is being looked at by the scientific group and. They haven't. They, they've not shared that with us yet. They're looking very closely at some of these questions. Um, there are various ways in which um, active surveillance can be put in place. Um, that doesn't have to always be testing, um, because there are, you know, the, 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 there are general issues, nothing to do with schools, about um, testing of uh, asymptomatic individuals. Um, so that. The, it's not viewed to be a particularly effective means of handling the virus to undertake testing of that nature. So uh, we've, we've got to essentially follow that clinical advice and that's not yet come to the education recovery group, but uh, I'm certainly very open to exploring all of these questions to make sure that we can, um, we, we can act with the, with the questions of safety in mind. What, what's clear to me, is that if we are to have a return of full-time schooling, that will have to be accompanied by a range of mitigation measures, uh, which will be around um, hand hygiene, around um, um, a hand sanitizer, around the cleaning regimes within schools, um, within the the movement within schools, um, about some of the physical distancing rules that we've talked about. Um, so there's, a, there's a, a range of different possibilities that we've got to think through um, as, we, uh, as we design the way in which schools return full time. I think that just in terms of those, you know, sort of other, you know, sort of those very, very basic things that need to be put in place, you know, the message about hand washing, for instance, any SUWT, the, the Teach Scotland, the Teaching Union, 
they did um, a survey. Um, I think it was about 350 teachers who had taken part in that. But roughly a third were only, I think it was only about a third were confident that there would be enough hand washing, you know, facilities in place to be able to have these, you know, sort of more regular hand washing regimes in place for students and for and for staff. Can you sort of give, what can you say to make teachers feel confident that, or what reassurance can you give that these very, very basic things, you know, will be in place? Well, well, they have to be in place and they, 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 there have to be the arrangements in place to make sure that good hand hygiene is, is able to be maintained by, by children, young people and staff. I was looking at some research just last night on just the significance of effective regular hand hygiene in trying to minimise infection. It, and, and it's extraordinary the degree to which it, that simple elementary element of life can actually reduce the prevalence of a virus. So individual schools must be supported to put in place the arrangements that will enable young people and staff to be able to observe good, high-quality hand hygiene. Another of the big issues, uh, the big announcements by the First Minister yesterday was about face coverings and these are going to become mandatory in shops from Friday the 10th of July. Uh, a lot of the reaction was like, that's fair enough, but if they're going to be mandatory in shops, then shouldn't they also be mandatory in nurseries, schools and colleges? What's your, what, what would you say on that? I think in terms of, certainly like if, we, if we separate this into, into pupils and staff, um, I think for broadly for most pupils, I think there is no argument, there is no tangible case for the wearing of face coverings in school. Um, I think for some senior pupils, there is a question about that because they are essentially young adults and um, the, there are questions about staff. And again, that's part of the material advice that we're taking from um, uh, from the scientific advisory panel. So we, you, we, we have to look carefully. The question of face coverings will be influenced by the degree of proximity that has been observed between adults and children and young people, the frequency of that interaction and the duration of that interaction. And we have to make a, a, a kind of carefully constructed judgment about how all those different factors fit together in coming to a, a conclusion about whether that would be justifiable, given the fact that, the that what we know about coronavirus so far is that for you know, to, to a very high degree, young people are not significant transmitters of coronavirus, nor are they significantly affected by it should they contracted. So there, 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 there's a, a set of different judgments that have got to be arrived at uh, and applied within our education system based on that uh, on that advice that we that, that we take. And, and when would you expect to provide very clear advice on what the expectations are come? The that's all going to have to be set out um, when we set out the guidance which will have to be by the 30th of July. And it, it, would that be also when um, 
we know that one of the groups um, that that's a disp- disproportionate risk um, of COVID nineteen is black and minor and ethnic minority um, people. And so, in terms of what um, guidance and staying safe that you might give to BAME teachers, would that also be something that would be coming on July 30th or is there anything more that you could say it was just very noticeable that immediately after you had um, spoken there was uh, when you were making your announcement about full-time face-to-face teaching that there was some um, there was some tweeting going on um, you know sort of with um, BAME teachers asking for for reassurance and and you know and how would how would they be kept safe? Yeah, well, all all of these questions you know, will, will be part of the of the guidance, and there is a whole question of um, the safety and the reassurance of staff that is fundamental, central to our ability to restore full time schooling. So I I'm keen, acutely aware of the need to make sure that staff feel confident in the arrangements that are being put in place, and that will be an absolute priority for me to make sure that we build that confidence, the confidence among staff, the confidence amongst parents, the confidence amongst children and young people. But we need staff to believe that uh, it is um, safe and effective for them to be back in school. Is it hard to build that confidence when the announcements won't come out, you know, that these decisions won't be made until July 30th and yet schools are expected back, you know, sort of relatively quickly after that you know would it be would it not be possible to set out here's the we've got the we've got the contingency plan don't we in terms of the part-time and the blended learning would it be possible to say well here's the plan here's the plan a and and then have those have those two plans you know sort of thought through so that people know you know sort of what what those each look like and then the decision comes on July 30th about which of those is going to be taken forward. Yeah, well, well that, that, essentially, that, that is what we're doing, is, is we're working through all those issues with the scientific advice to, to get to that point. But there is another important dimension which I think affects confidence, which is what's happening on the rest of the issue within society. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and yeah. we, can't, we shouldn't compartmentalise education off from the rest of society, because uh, you know, it's really welcome. There'll be people around the country who will be overjoyed today, uh, being able to hug their grandchildren uh, today. There'll be you know, and 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 young people that can stroll about with their friends, and uh, and their parents can watch them doing that and seeing the joy of those encounters. And that will change how people feel today, because I think, well, that's us taking another step, and there'll be more steps to be taken next week. And there'll be more steps the week after that. Mm. So by the time we, you know, it's, it's, it's about, this is in a sense what influenced my judgment to say, right, we're going to change the planning assumption to move to full-time schooling in August because I could see, first Wednesday, I could see that there was a, a wider movement in society that was changing how people were feeling about the progress that was being made. And if we hadn't made that shift, there's a danger that the education system might not have been operating in the same kind of time scale as the rest of society. 
And on a different topic, you've made it clear that plans are continuing for a traditional exam diet in 2021, albeit it may happen a little bit later than it normally does in the year. Um, there were high hopes amongst a lot of people that one silver lining to come out of all the COVID-19 upheaval uh, would be that there'd be some sort of innovative approach to qualifications that was less reliant on high stakes end of year exams, which I don't think anyone thinks is a, is a perfect way of assessing young people. In the end, that seems like it's barely being considered. Why is, why is that? There's, there's two points in there that I'd want to separate. One is the question uh, of the running of an exam diet in 2021. And the other question is the question of what's the most appropriate way of assessing the achievements of young people. Now, on the first point uh, about an exam diet, um, we, we, we have we, we have a system, whether we like it or not, which is currently operating in a fashion that ends up with the exam diet in the fashion that we, we know for a certain proportion of pupils. That's obviously, you know, we've broadened out the range of assessment vehicles and assessment opportunities for young people through the broader range of qualifications that we now have. Uh, but I do accept that for the overwhelming majority of young people, national qualifications of the type that we have with exams has been part of the norm. So I think people would expect in the ordinary course of events for us to be sustaining an exam diet. On the second question, however, I think there's every need for us to openly explore whether exam diets are the way of the future. I think there's a really strong argument for there to be reform in the way in which that is undertaken. And um, I'm certainly very happy to engage and explore on those questions because there's, um, there's very valid, valid arguments for taking forward the assessment of the achievements of young people through mechanisms other than by having exams of the format that we have. And of course, next year, the decision may be taken entirely out of your hands. If there's, for example, a second wave, you may have to cancel the exams again. When can teachers expect more guidance on what they need to do to prepare for that eventuality? I, I would expect that guidance to be available to schools when they return in the autumn. Okay. And just finally on exams, uh, in a little over a month's time, we'll have to, this year's results, which are obviously based on a year when there, there were no exams, ultimately. Um, the exams being cancelled back in March. Are you expecting uh, one of the controversial issues over recent months has been whether many students' uh, grades will be changed after the moderation process? Are you expecting that that, that will be the case, that uh, the, the, the grades that ultimately students get will be will often change? Yeah, I, I, I don't know the answer to I genuinely don't know the answer to your question. Um, Henry, we'll find that out when we get to exam results day. There was there's one thing that sort of bugs me about um, sticking with the exam diet um, next year and keeping things the way that they are, um, and and that's just because there's been this really strong message I think that's been going out about prioritising pupils' mental health and well-being when the schools go back. But I just don't understand how it is that schools are supposed to do that for their senior pupils when 
they know that they've got all this coursework to get through in exactly the same way as they would have to do in any other year. If And obviously in any other year, there isn't usually a lockdown that's lasted for weeks and weeks and weeks and also eaten into the time that they would usually have had to deliver courses. Now, of course, we know that there's still been learning going on, but we also know that that learning has not been going on for all young people. Yeah, I think there's a, well, there's, there's a number of things in there. There has been learning going on, and I, I think I think actually you know, I've, I've heard a lot of, sadly, because it's the usual kind of political traffic about these questions, but fundamentally, I, you know, I think a, a lot of good learning has been undertaken, led by teachers, and a lot of independent learners in our senior phase have been very much engaged in that process. So that's happened. Um, we're going to boost the resources in terms of the teaching population that's available next year to to, to assist and support the, uh, the, the the educational attainment of young people. Um, I, I've, I've said that we'll look at the timing of the exam diet um, because there is an opportunity to slip that a bit in the year um, to enable us to um, to be able to um, expand the amount of teaching time that's available um, for children and young people and for staff. So I think if we look at that whole combination of measures, I think there is, you know, there's a strategy there that can that can get us to, uh, to a desirable position. But you do raise a fundamentally important point, Emma, which is about the importance of our schools performing the role that we all rely on them to perform which is to, pro to provide a place of safety and assurance and support and encouragement for the well-being of young people. And I think if there's anything that worries me a lot, the most about lockdown, is the absence of that school community, that atmosphere, which I think broadly works for most young people who feel good about their school, who feel associated with a school. Um, I took part in a, a podcast with um, some pupils from Renfrew High School during the, um, the, the period of lockdown. And one of the, they asked me what I had, what I'd observed about the school system during lockdown, which had heartened me most. And the thing I said, apart from the delivery of learning, was the fact that I thought schools had succeeded in demonstrating their sense of community was not just about being physically present in a building, that it was about who, who you're part of, who you're with, who you're associated with, who you're supported by. And, and schools had, had really done a good job on that. And I think that's something which I think is, we underestimate, I think, the strength of that, that that gives to young people by, by being together and being part of a community that supports them. And that's important for all of them, but um, we know sadly that there are a lot of young people out there that school may be the only safe and stable place in their lives. Yeah. And so there's a lot of concern about, uh, will the attainment gap widen? Will be kids of certain, their lives are in a certain context, uh, there's certain difficulties in their life that are going to suffer the most from everything that's happening just now. How big a concern is that to you? It's that's a significant concern for me. You know, I've spent um, over four years uh, in this role, 
um, pursuing the uh, the closure of the poverty leader attainment gap and uh, I think the system has been making really good progress in closing that gap and unfortunately I think that will be that challenge has been made ever greater by the effect of lockdown and we, it's why I'm putting more resources into the education system to make sure that we can put in the most valuable resource that I think we can put in that can make a different a difference and that's you know, more of the teaching profession helping young people to uh, to, to to strengthen their the foundations of their education just uh, just finally as a country we're now slowly coming out of lockdown when you look at the big picture look at the past few months as education secretary i wonder if you could tell us one thing which with hindsight with what you know now you might have done differently and one thing that you think yeah we absolutely got that right I think if I was doing something uh, differently, uh, I probably would have said to people uh, there was there was the possibility of us being able to to achieve an improvement on coronavirus quicker. But then I can't actually think how I would have said that when I was trying to say to people follow the rules. Because if you don't follow the rules, we won't get to a better position. So I suppose I probably would have, I could see the advantages of doing that, but I think it was it's outweighed by the disadvantages. And in terms of what have we, you know, what have we done correct? I think we've taken, as a government, and this has been principally the culture set by the First Minister, we've taken a set of decisions which have been based on the considered evidence that we had in front of us at the time making the best of the available evidence we had in front of us and that doesn't mean to say that we just followed the science it's that we took considered judgments based on the evidence that we had in front of us and communicated those clearly and openly and honestly to the public. And I think that's why uh, today, I think the, the impression is that what the Scottish Government communicates is more reliable, more dependable, and more reassuring than what's communicated by the UK Government. Well, thank you very much for your time today. We hope that you and everyone involved in Scottish education get some sort of a break this summer. Goodness knows we all need it. Uh, are you going to manage to get away anywhere yourself, or are you hoping uh, to? I think that is sadly looking pretty unlikely. Um, mm. The normally, um, well, I. What day, this is Friday. I, I should have sailed yesterday to Tyree for our annual holiday, and I, I woke up yesterday morning and um, at quarter past five, and I realised, um, oh, if this had been. The day it was supposed to be, I've been waking up in a, a hotel in Oban, uh, ready to go and get the ferry at seven fifteen in the morning. And I was sitting working at my computer. I'd been out for a run yesterday morning, came back, I was sitting working at my computer at quarter past seven. I looked at the clock and I thought, this would be a moment. The ferry would just have slipped away from the pier in Oban, heading out in the sound of Mull to go to Tyree. And I thought, my goodness, I could do with that today. But sadly, that's not going to happen this year. But uh, we'll get the odd day here and there. But uh, we certainly, unfortunately, uh, with 
the sequence of events over the summer, um, I'm afraid there's not going to be much time off. Well, I feel your pain. I was meant to be in Sardinia right now. Uh, instead, I'm going to Aberdeen. <laughs> Almost the same. Um, but uh, thanks again. We hope that you can maybe join us again in a few months to talk about how 2021, the, this most unpredictable of school years, is panning out. And, and we'll maybe catch up again then. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Bye for now. Thank you. Bye for it. Thank you.